Hi, welcome to another podcast of the Apologist Bookshelf. Gary Zacharias here. I want to dip in for the second time to a book called Questioning the Bible by Jonathan Morrow, M-O-R-R-O-W. He's taking on 11 major challenges to the Bible's authority. So he deals with things like, is the Bible unscientific? Are the Gospels full of contradictions? Has the biblical text been corrupted over the centuries? Some really good, challenging questions. Uh, So he doesn't mess around. He takes some pretty hard issues. Uh, I did chapter 9 in an earlier podcast, and that was this this, uh, chapter's title is The Bible Sexist, Racist, Homophobic, and Genocidal. Those are a lot of uh, powerful challenges, especially in this uh, society that we're living in. We're hearing a lot of comments like that. Well, something else that I hear quite a bit that I would like to take on is is chapter 8, right next door. It's called, Is the Bible Unscientific? And, of course, we do live in an age of science, and so Morrow says, for a lot of people, the Bible seems unscientific. Not scientific, but unscientific. And you got things like uh, the parting of the Red Sea. Really? A man gets swallowed by a giant fish. That's Jonah. And he's in there for three days. He gets out and starts preaching. How about Jesus calming a storm, and then he walks on the water? How about a man who's been dead for a few days? He's raised from the dead. Uh, The virgin birth. Things like that. Morrow starts the chapter with this quotation from Richard Dawkins, everybody's favorite atheist. He said, The 19th century is the last time when it was possible for an educated person to admit to believing in miracles like the virgin birth without embarrassment. Yeah, okay. So what he does in the early part of the chapter here is to take on just the big picture, which is, can we believe in miracles anymore? Are miracles possible? Because... If they're impossible, then we can toss Christianity away. It's a supernatural religion. Um, Miracles are essential to the Christian faith. I mean, if Jesus isn't God and if he doesn't rise bodily from the grave, then what are we doing? I guess we're just gathering on Sunday and singing some nice songs. So Morrow starts off with the prominent Scottish philosopher David Hume. He had an essay on miracles. And he said, uh, a lot of people think that Hume just wiped the floor with miracles and and then tossed them away. And uh, people now are saying that's not true. But let's go through this. So Hume says that belief should be justified by probability. And probability is based on the fact that nature is consistent. It always behaves in a certain way. So it's likely that it always will behave that way. So based on that probability... He says that exceptions to nature's law are so improbable, you can just consider them impossible. So anything that's unique to normal human experience, like a miracle, should be eliminated. Just get rid of it right out. He says a miracle, this is Hume talking, It's a, a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature. And so as said, uh, you can just toss that away. So that's his main objection. Of course, the problem with that, if you really think about it, is called circular reasoning. Here's what C.S. Lewis pointed out. Now, of course, we must agree with Hume that if there is absolutely uniform experience, quote-unquote, against miracles, in other words, if they've never happened, why, then they never have. Got that? So what did Hume say? That uh, miracles can't happen because nature never has any miracles. Ah, hmm, okay, that's called circular reasoning. He was assuming what he was trying to prove. Let's go through four facts, quote-unquote facts, that Hume presented against miracles, and then Morrow offers a response to each of them. So here's the first one. Hume says, No historical miracle has been sufficiently attested by honest and reliable men. 
Okay, so in other words, we just don't have anything that we can trust. But Morrow says gospel writers were interested in and capable of recording accurate history, and Jesus was a miracle worker not just according to the gospels, but it's in non-Christian sources as well, Josephus and the Talmud. And then several of the disciples get put to death because of their convictions that Jesus had risen from the dead. And he says that doesn't prove that they're accurate, but it does show the depth of their conviction. So there's number one. No historical miracle has been sufficiently attested by honest and reliable men. Really? Uh, here's number two. Here's what Hume says. People crave miraculous stories, and they're going to gullibly believe really absurd stories. And Morrow says, well, sure, some people will be uh, gullible, and they'll follow some crazy ideas. But is that true for everybody everywhere? And he gives a, a book reference here. It's a book by Craig Keener, K-E-E-N-E-R, called Miracles, The Credibility of the New Testament Accounts. Keener has a 1,200-page book that explodes the myth that miracles have not occurred back in the ancient days and are not occurring today. And I had that book. That's a two-volume book. I loaned it to somebody, and I think it's disappeared. But it's powerful. He documents, I'm talking about Keener here, he documents all kinds of healings and people gaining eyesight and actually some people being raised from the dead, his own sister-in-law. All right, so is it always gullible people? No. Here's a third challenge that Hume comes up with. Miracles only occur among ignorant and uncivilized people. That sounds a little uh, racist to me. But did Jesus' miracles occur among ignorant and uncivilized people? It was the Jews. They were highly educated. They were sophisticated people. They're not going to fall for a con job. And he says, uh, Morrow says, again, I'd refer you to Keener's book to show uh, what's going on in the world today. How about number four? What else does Hume say? Miracles occur in all religions, so they cancel each other out. And Morrow says, well, that's true that other religions do have miracle claims, but none of the miracles are as powerfully attested to as the miracles of Jesus. And the historical evidence for the resurrection is really pretty strong. And I won't get into that here, but I agree. Gary Habermas has done a lot of work on that. So he says uh, Hume's argument against miracles is unsuccessful. And after all, if it's even possible that God exists, and you can't rule out his intervention in the natural world before we consider the evidence, seems like, and I agree, I think this is the heart of this thing, examine the evidence for miracles on a case-by-case -case basis. Don't just toss it away and just say, oh, it can't happen. Look, look at the evidence and decide. And most people, I think, would, would agree there's probably a God, but if there's a God, then you've opened up the supernatural, and God can intervene in nature. It's kind of like, uh, I think it was uh, C.S. Lewis had this illustration of you have a, a vase on a shelf and somebody knocks the vase over and it starts tumbling toward the ground. Gravity is going to uh, come into effect there and that vase will land and smash to pieces. But what if somebody grabs the vase as it's falling and puts it back up on the shelf? Did that person cancel gravity? Did they get rid of gravity? No. They intervened. They put their hand in and uh, made things happen differently, even though gravity was still working. So that may be a little bit like we can picture God intervening in, in a miraculous way. Uh, so then he says, well, look, that's the big argument, isn't it? If it's possible that God exists. So Morrow now says, you know, there are actually some scientifically oriented arguments that have brought a rise again of Christian theism. 
And here they are, and I've done talks on these. I think each of these is really powerful. One is called the cosmological argument. In other words, the universe had a beginning. How did it come about? It couldn't come about, it, it couldn't make itself come about, right? There has to be a cause. That cause has to be outside of matter, space, time, and energy, outside of nature. So what do you call something outside of nature? Supernatural. So it's reasonable to think that a transcendent cause outside of the universe is responsible. So at some point in time, the cause had to be timeless, immaterial, intelligent, powerful, and personal. That sounds like a beginner, right? If there's a, I think Greg Kokel's the one who says if there's a big bang, there has to be a big banger. So that seems to be a, a pretty strong argument. How do you get the universe here? How do you get the universe started? Number two, here's another argument for God that we're beginning to really look at strongly these days. It's the design argument from physics. You know, the laws of physics, everything from how atoms work to um, the attraction of uh, electrons to um, the expansion rate of the universe. I mean, it's all the laws of physics and all that govern the universe are fine-tuned for human life. If you changed any of the numbers of these physical constants like gravity or whatever it is, the universe would be inhospitable. So that seems to argue for a possibility of a God who tuned everything exactly right. Then you've also got design. This is a third argument for God. You've got design in DNA. I mean, you look at the cellular organization going on. Morrow says genetic information does all that. Human DNA, he says, has the informational equivalent of about 8,000 books. Now, natural forces, just operating by chance and necessity, they can't explain how you get this biological information. It always comes from a mind. And here we go. We're back to God again. Um, I like, uh, he has a quote here from Anthony Flew, who says, he was a really strong atheist, but he wrote a book called There is a God, and he says, I now believe the universe is brought into existence by an infinite intelligence. And he says, why? He says, uh, modern science. Okay, he says, uh, the world picture now is changing, and he has this view because of science. All right. Let me pick up, uh, see, if, what do I want to pick up here? Well, he says the, the problem that we're getting into is not science versus Christianity. They're not at war. It's naturalism against theism. Okay, does that make sense? Alvin Plantinga said, there's a superficial conflict, but deep concord between science and theism. Okay, so I know there's a lot of science and, and theism, meaning a belief in God. They overlap. But he says there's superficial concord, but deep conflict between science and naturalism. Naturalism says there's no God. And he says it's not the kind of thing you think of that science and theism fight. It's between science and naturalism. So he says there's a clash of worldviews. Okay, what else does he talk about here? Um, C.S. Lewis says men became scientific because they expected law and nature, and they expected law and nature because they believed in a lawgiver. All right, um, I'm going to skip over part of this just because he's got some good stuff. Oh, the last part of the chapter, I want to spend just a couple minutes on this. I know this is not in-depth, but I like what he does here. He said every time he starts talking about science to people, one of the big questions that comes up is what went on in Genesis, age of the earth? Oh boy, yeah, people, there's a lot of heat and, and fire that gets mixed up about that, isn't it? He said, you know, first things, Christians need to present 
a united front opposing naturalism. All right, so we shouldn't be shooting ourselves, right? The, the enemy is naturalism. Um, secondly, he said Christians have to be charitable toward other Christians who disagree. And I've seen some great examples of charitable reactions, and I've, I've seen some ugly responses where if you don't agree with somebody, they, they don't necessarily believe you're a Christian. And uh, said uh, you don't want to be seen as bickering and angry with each other. So what are the options? Right near the end of the chapter, and again, I'm going to go really quickly over these, but I think he was very fair. He said, here are the four views that uh, interpretations of Genesis 1 and 2. But right before he starts that, he said, you know, we may all clash on these, these particular areas, but he said, we all agree on some huge things. One, that God in Genesis is independent of creation. He's not created. He's not self-created. He's always been there. He transcends creation. He's sovereign over all creation. He alone is deity. And man does not provide for God, but God provides for man. So we can agree on a lot of these things before we get into the debate about Genesis 1 and 2. So he said, here are the four views. Uh, I would suggest there's a fifth one. I'm going to mention a fifth one in just a second. So he says, four interpretations of Genesis 1 and 2 that take the Bible seriously. By the way, that may be why he's not going to do the fifth one, but I still want to mention it. So the first one is, he calls it calendar day interpretation. Sometimes it's called a 24-hour view. <clears throat> and it says, there were six 24-hour days. Boom, 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 right in a row. And that's how creation happened. Then there's the day-age interpretation. That's understood in the sense that when we say day, sometimes we mean just a period of time. So there are periods of time where God intervened periodically. So that could extend over millions of years. That's a day-age interpretation. Here's the third one. It's called framework. And it understands that this week is a metaphor. And in the metaphor, you have day one through four. I'm sorry, day one and day two and day three. God creates these areas, right? These kingdoms. And in day four, five, and six, he fills those kingdoms with the appropriate animal life and all. So day one corresponds to day four. Day two corresponds to the creativity of five. And day three corresponds to the activity in day six. So its kingdoms are set up in days one and two and three. And then days four and six are the creation's kings that fill that up. So I know it sounds confusing, but it, just look it up sometime. It's the framework interpretation. In other words, it's more metaphor, not literal days necessarily. Then you've got one called the analogical days. So the idea is it's a six-in-one pattern. So six days, like God worked, is sort of like what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to work for six days. And they're broadly consecutive days, successive days, but unspecified length. So uh, that's analogical, kind of a six-to-one relationship. The one that he doesn't talk about, and he, maybe because he doesn't think it's, I don't know, quite as uh, taking the Bible as seriously, it's theistic evolution. I have a lot of problems with theistic evolution as well. But again, I won't get into it here. But theistic evolution says evolution really took place, but God knew and he figured out how to make it go where he wanted it to go. Okay, I mean, I hope you can see there's an initial problem with that. Evolution, by definition of the people who buy into it, say it's unguided. 
It's an unguided process. It's random. How do you have a random, unguided process that's guided and, and taken care of by God? It's like a guided, unguided uh, process. That doesn't make any sense to me, but I'll leave it there. Okay, so he ends the chapter by saying we should be humble in our interpretations. The older I get, the more I believe that. I have my own strong views, but uh, I know in the past uh, I stepped on some toes and I feel really bad about that. I need to back off. I need to realize good, honest people disagree about these things. So he says we should have conversations in the public square and in our churches and youth groups about the evidence that undermines Darwinian evolution and points toward intelligent design. So I think that's a really good thing to talk about. He said we would gain a lot if we could discuss our differences openly, honestly, and charitably. And I say amen to that. So the book, again, Questioning the Bible, Jonathan Morrow's the author. He writes a lot of really good material, not just this book, but other books that make Christianity understandable for everybody. And so I recommend just about anything that he's put out. Okay, well, thanks for joining me. Uh, let's do another podcast soon.